Slavery, one of the prime examples of man's inhumanity to man and something that was obviously practiced widely during the period of early Christianity. But what did the early church have to say about it? Well, in this video, we'll take a look at where and how the various councils and synods organized by the church during the 4th and 5th centuries and beyond mention the practice of keeping slaves and slavery in general. Many of the most important decisions regarding the future direction of Christianity were taken in these various synods and councils, and this was especially so in the ecumenical councils held after Constantine became the emperor. So these meetings were important events in shaping modern Europe and Christianity in general, and of course European thinking. By the way, this is a follow-up to a video I recently released on several of the Christian saints during the Roman Empire period and their comments and remarks on slavery. And if you'd like to watch that video, the, the link is at the top right of the picture. So firstly, how many church councils and synods were there? Well, here's a timeline of the more well-known and some of the less well-known ones that we have records of. There was actually a huge number of them. In Africa, for example, there were no less than 15 just in Carthage between the years of 397 and 490. So this chart doesn't show the full extent of these regional but important synods and is not an exhaustive record by any means. Of course, the most famous one is the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council held in 325 CE when the belief regarding the nature of Christ was crystallised and the Trinitarian model began to evolve into official dogma. And this was held just a decade after the Edict of Milan in 313 CE when Christianity was legalised by Constantine and the Eastern Roman Emperor Licinius. And regarding their origin, you could argue that this custom of holding councils and synods began right from the time of the Council of Jerusalem mentioned in Acts chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 2, which was held around 50 CE and where the apostles Peter and Paul were part of the attendance. And so from that time, the custom of these get-togethers seemed to have gathered pace. But in this video, we'll just stick to the relevant ones with mentions of slavery. And these are the Council of Elvira in the year 3. 306 CE, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Synod of Gangra around 340, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Council in Trullo in 692, and finally the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 CE. Now a spoiler before we dive into the issue, none of these councils and synods, perhaps not surprisingly, include any condemnation by the assembled bishops of the practice of slavery itself and any promotion of the idea of freeing slaves from their bondage. The canons, meaning the policies and rules thrashed out at these events, rather comment on slavery in passing and specify on what slaves can and cannot do and conversely what their master can and cannot do. But before we get into the subject proper, a very quick reminder that if you'd like to jump ahead to any particular section in the video, the links to the various church councils are given in the description below. So let's get into it. One of the first councils of Christian bishops and clergy that took place at the beginning of the 4th century was the Synod of Elvira. Elvira, a corruption of the Roman name of Eliberi, was a, a town very close to the modern-day city of Granada in the south of Spain. The Synod was held in 306 CE, and to put that in context, this was the same year that Constantius Chlorus, the father of Constantine, died, allowing Constantine to be elevated to the status of Augustus in Britain. 
an event which would later lead to the Edict of Milan in 313 CE when Christianity would be legalised within the empire. So in essence, this council took place very close to the Christian period of Rome and just around 20 years before the Council of Nicaea. So returning to the Synod itself, what did the bishops organise the assembly for? Well, it was really part of the continuing evolution of sorting out a, a code of conduct for Christians amongst other rules and regulations. Together, the bishops hammered out a list of no less than 81 fairly diverse canons or laws and directives that the Christian clergy should follow and Christians should follow if they are to receive communion and for how long they are not to receive communion if they fail to keep to the rules and regulations set out by the bishops. Included were rules and directives against heretics, apostates and lapsed Christians as well as instructions on the conduct of women, marriage, fasting and various other miscellaneous subjects, including even sorcery. And interestingly, there were rules regarding maintaining a distance from the wider pagan community and the Jewish community as well. And I thought I'd quickly run through a few of these interesting ones before we get to the ones on slavery. Canon number 49, for example, makes it clear that Jews are to be banned from blessing any crops that a, a Christian farmer has grown, as that would reduce the power of the Christian blessing. And this action of allowing a Jew to bless the crops was considered serious enough for the Christian landowner to be thrown out of the Christian faith and shows the fairly heavy contempt for Jews and Judaism that was being fostered by the church at the time. And as you can see from Canon 50, the bishops at the Synod decided association with the Jewish community was in fact complete anathema and even eating with the Jews was considered an offence, albeit not as serious as using rabbis to bless crops. Similarly so with the pagan community, Christian girls, for example, could not marry pagans, marriage with them being equated with spiritual adultery according to Canon number 15. And Canon 17, for example, warned Christian parents that they would be thrown out of the church, effectively excommunicated if their Christian daughter married a pagan priest, communion being refused to them for life. This being seen as far more serious than being married to a common pagan. And in terms of committing sins like adultery, Canon 78 explains the punishment was greater if the adultery was committed with a Jewish or pagan woman as opposed to a Christian woman. So some very exclusivist rules and regulations in force for Christians at the time. But let's take a look at the canons that deal with slavery. And there are three canons that are relevant. Canon number five deals with the punishment to be meted out to someone who beats a slave of theirs to death and for how long they should be denied receiving communion at a church. Quote, if a woman overcome with rage whips her servant so badly that she dies within three days and it is doubtful whether she killed her on purpose or by accident, provided that the required penance has been done, she shall be readmitted after seven years if it was done purposely and after five years if accidentally. In the event that she becomes ill during the set time, let her receive communion. Now, Anyone who has read the Old Testament will no doubt realise there is a passing resemblance to the directive in Exodus regarding slaves being beaten to death. And that is in Exodus chapter 21. But in fact, as you can see, there are differences as well. In Exodus, the man faces possible punishment if the slave didn't survive for a couple of days. Punishment for women is excluded for some reason. In contrast, in the Christian canon, it's the woman who has to show repentance or some sort of personal penance for a number of years, while there is no injustice on men for killing slaves, whether male or female. And that's a very curious feature of both canons, I guess. The penance, by the way, for five or seven years suggested for women 
Bearing in mind that a murder or manslaughter has been committed wasn't a particularly severe sentence, and especially if we compare it to other canons drawn up in the list for other misdemeanors. Canon number 41 is to do with the treatment of pagan slaves owned by Christian masters. The Christian owners are advised to try and destroy or remove pagan idols from their homes and lands, which the slaves use for worship. But if there is a danger of violence, then to refrain from removing the idols. However, they are not themselves to have anything to do with idol worship, otherwise they will be considered outcasts. In other words, apostates. Quote, the faithful are warned to forbid as far as they can that idols be kept in their homes. If, however, they fear violence from their slaves, they must at least keep themselves pure. If they do not do this, they are to be considered outside the church. Unquote. Now, as mentioned, this was prior to Constantine becoming a Christian, and so it makes sense that Christians not try and pick fights with pagans, who would have been the vast majority of the population at this time. Finally, Canon 80 addresses the issue of slaves being above their station, even when they have perhaps bought their own freedom or have been freed by their owners. Quote, it is forbidden for freed men whose former masters are still alive to be promoted to the clergy, unquote. And one has to presume this was to preserve the class system and to prevent the embarrassing situation of a former slave having any form of authority, even spiritual, over a previous master by joining the clergy and thereby avoiding awkward situations like Christian slave owners having to listen to sermons or other religious advice from their former slaves. So let's move on to the Council of Nicaea, which was organised around 20 years after Elvira. Nicaea was very close to Constantinople, around 140 kilometres away to the south, and is now known as Iznik. The council, the most well-known of all the church councils, obviously had a focus on the nature of Christ in terms of the agenda. But we also have information on the various canons agreed upon from a book called History of the Council of Nicaea, or alternatively called Anonymous Church History, which was written circa 475 CE. The the work is anonymous, as the name suggests, but is generally attributed to a chap called Galatius of Chizikus. The book is controversial in that it wasn't given much weight when discovered, although many historians now give it much more importance than before. Anyway, canon number one is the one we want to have a look at from the list. The canon allows anyone castrated to become a member of the clergy, but if anyone voluntarily goes through castration while being a priest, then they must lose their position. But the ruling also allows slaves who have been castrated by their masters, in other words, involuntarily, to later enter the church's clergy. Quote, if anyone in sickness has been subjected by physicians to a surgical operation, or if he has been castrated by barbarians, let him remain among the clergy. But if anyone in sound health has castrated himself, it behoves that such a one, if enrolled among the clergy, should cease, and that from henceforth no such person should be promoted. But as it is evident that this is said of those who willfully do the thing and presume to castrate themselves, so if any have been made eunuchs by barbarians or slaves by their masters and should otherwise be found worthy, such men the canon admits to the clergy. So, as you can see, an allowance therefore made to those who were forced into this operation, including slaves, by this canon, although there is no reflection by the bishops on the disagreeable nature of slavery itself. Let's move on to the Synod of Gangra, held around 20 or 30 years after the Council of Nicaea. Now, we don't know the exact date it was held, but we know it must have been around 340 CE to 376. The writings of Sozomen, a Christian lawyer and historian of the 5th century, suggest around 345 CE, while Socrates Scholasticus, a church historian of the early 5th century, mentions 365, and the writings of St. Basil of the 4th century indicate it may have been as late as 376. 
1026. But whatever the case, this was very firmly into the Christian period of the Roman Empire. The venue for the synod was Gangra or Gagra in Asia Minor. And the city of Gangra is now called Kankiri and is pretty close to Ankara, the capital of modern day Turkey. The reason the council was held was primarily to condemn what was termed the Eustathian heresy and was directed at Eustathius, the bishop of Sebastia and his followers, who were propagating non-mainstream ideas. Sebastia, by the way, has now morphed into the modern city of Sivas, but was located in Armenia at the time. Eustathius believed in a sort of semi-Aryan version of Christianity and had in fact studied under Arius, but he also had other radical ideas which the council hoped to respond to. For instance, he believed married people could not achieve salvation because they had their mind on carnal and family matters rather than solely on spiritual matters. In fact, he went as far as forbidding prayers to be undertaken in married people's houses. Eustathius and his followers also used to fast on Sundays, unlike other Christians. He also frequently criticised the offices of the church and ordered his followers to have a separate form of clothing, with women wearing the same clothes as men and cutting their hair short. There was to be no longer any distinction in sex between men and women, and all who were baptised and interested in monastic life and asceticism could wear a simple monks-type garb, whether male or female. Eustathius also seemed to prefer vegetarianism and discouraged the eating of meat. And most importantly, for the purposes of this video at least, Eustathius was one of the very few church leaders who believed in the abolition of slavery and helping slaves seeking freedom to escape their bondage. And in fact, he and his followers encouraged them to do so. And uh, as you can imagine, quite a revolutionary idea in those days. So at the Senate of Gangra, 21 bishops would assemble to think over matters and pontificate on how to counteract this new heresy. The Synod had papal authority. We know this from Pope Symmachus, a later pope, who declares this in the Roman Synod of 504 CE. In addition, bishops at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 would also ratify and sanction all decisions taken by the Synod of Gangra, suggesting these policies were the consensus amongst most, if not all, the bishops. So what did they come up with? Well, the bishops took time to formulate various canons, 20 in number, that should guide the Christian community and at the same time counteract the Eustathians whose views they labelled as heretical. As with the Senate of Elvira, there were some rather strange or interesting canons that the bishops decided on, but this time with the Eustathians in mind. So let's go through a few of the more interesting ones before we get to the directive on slavery. Canon 2 condemned any Christian, in other words Eustathians, who promoted a meat-free diet as being preferable and criticised the eating of meat. And this was because the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 makes it clear that man has been given dominion over animals and that they have been created for his use. Certainly the biblical God had not commanded Adam and Eve to be vegetarian and in fact preferred burnt offerings as sacrifices himself. And canon 13 forbade women from wearing men's clothing. And that was because the church frowned on women using men's clothing, mainly due to the Bible teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And Canon 17 forbade women from cutting their hair short, as this went against the teachings of St. Paul, who in 1 Corinthians mentions hair being the covering for women, and which therefore should not be shorn like a man's. But it was Canon number 3 which addresses slaves and slavery, and countered the Eustathian belief in freeing slaves. And this was unacceptable to the church, and therefore the bishops condemned this action on their part, and forbade slaves to attempt any sort of action such as this. 
Quote, if anyone on the pretext of godliness teach a slave to scorn his master and to leave his service and not to afford his services to his own master with favour and all honour, let him be anathema. And this was a clear indication of the church seeking to maintain the status quo in Roman society at that time rather than promoting manumission. There were, of course, biblical underpinnings to this reasoning, and the scripture supporting this stance was as follows. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 explicitly mentions slaves louding and honouring their masters as that being the scheme of things according to the biblical God, anything else being blasphemy. And this, of course, was diametrically opposite to what Eustathius was teaching. The other mention of slaves being obedient to their masters comes in Titus chapter 2. So, as far as the bishops were concerned, this criticism of slavery was heresy running counter to biblical teachings. As far as we know, this particular canon discouraging slaves to escape was not controversial in any way, and there doesn't seem to have been any dissension from any bishops on the issue. By the way, if you're finding this video informative and you like the kind of videos that I put out on the channel, I really would be grateful if you could press the like button and hit the subscribe button as well. That would really help the channel in terms of boosting it up in the YouTube search algorithms. And if you fancy going a step further, I do have a Patreon account and a couple of other methods for one-off payments, which again would really help to push the channel along as creating videos can be quite time consuming. Moving on, the Council of Chalcedon, arguably the most well-known council after Nicaea, took place in 451 CE. Chalcedon is, of course, in Asia Minor as well, and the town was not far off from Constantinople. In fact, it was so close that the town has now become a suburb of Istanbul with the modern name of Kadikoy. Chalcedon was one of the largest of the councils, with no less than 520 bishops taking part, and this was prompted by various other heresies that were sprouting up at the time, specifically those of Nestorius and Eutyches. Again, these were differences in opinion about the nature of Christ between the various Christian sects. The council ended up agreeing on 30 canons, most of them fairly straightforward and not entirely eccentric to 21st century eyes like the ones of Elvira and Gangra. I suppose the most interesting one is number 28, which elevated the Bishop of Constantinople to the same rank as that of Rome. Constantinople being the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire and from a political angle and consequently from from a religious angle, therefore assuming a much more important role as time went on. So what did this particular council have to say about slavery? Well, canon number four declares that any slave wishing to join a monastery was required to get permission from their owners rather than simply fleeing to these places. And this was presumably, we have to guess, to prevent slaves from gaining freedom simply by joining a Christian monastic community, churches and monastic places being considered sanctuaries. Quote, and no slave shall be received into any monastery to become a monk against the will of his master. And if anyone shall transgress this, our judgment we have decreed that he shall be excommunicated, that the name of God be not blasphemed. Unquote. And so this ruling eliminated a loophole in the system whereby a friendly or sympathetic member of the clergy, for example, might be tempted to allow a slave to join the church or a monastery. We don't know how prevalent the issue of slaves escaping bondage by becoming members of the clergy was at that time, but it, it seems from this canon that it may have been happening fairly often enough to have been on the agenda at the council. The next church council I thought I'd mention was the Council in Trullo, the more well-known name for what was called the Quinisext Council. Now, this was a major church synod organised by the Emperor Justinian II in the year 692. 
The council was attended by 215 bishops from the Byzantine Empire and was held in Constantinople, in fact in the imperial palace itself. Now, in this council there were no less than 102 canons agreed upon on various and miscellaneous subjects. Now, this was a, a fairly turbulent period politically and militarily, with the Arabs defeating the Byzantine armies and effectively taking over much of the Middle East and Palestine. And in fact, they had advanced as far as Constantinople itself, laying siege to the city in 674 CE. And therefore, much of the Christian territory of the empire was lost, some of it permanently, like Palestine. Anyway, that's the background to the council. So let's take a quick look at some of the interesting canons agreed upon. So there were various directives in the canon list on the chaos the Arab invasions were having in terms of bishops losing the cities they ruled from. For example, Canon 39 mentions that the island of Cyprus had been captured by the quote, barbarian incursions, unquote. And the bishop of the island, a chap called John, had fled the island alongside many other Christians, quote, so that he may be freed from servitude of the heathen, unquote. Another canon number 11 made it anathema for anyone to eat the bread of the Jews or in fact have any friendly relations with this community. Quote, let no one in the priestly order nor any layman eat the unleavened bread of the Jews, nor have any familiar intercourse with them, nor summon them in illness, nor receive medicines from them, nor bathe with them. But if anyone shall take in hand to do so, if he is a cleric, let him be deposed. But if a layman, let him be cut off, unquote. And this again showed the massive divide that the bishops had created between the Christians and the Jews by this time, with an almost full-on boycott of the community. Another canon addressed several traditions and practices that had pagan origins and therefore needed to be eliminated from Christian culture. These were the festivals of Kalends, Bota and Brumalia, all of pagan origin, but which had not yet been extinguished and were still being practised by the population. And there were other pagan customs still prevailing, like the calling of Bacchus when wine was being pressed, Bacchus being the god of winemaking, amongst other things. This popular ritual was also banned. So, some very interesting stuff, but let's get to the canons relating to slavery. Canon number five bans the members of the clergy from keeping female slaves so that their reputation may not be sullied in carnal matters. In fact, even eunuchs were banned from keeping slave women or any other female servants. Quote, let none of those who are on the priestly list possess any woman or maidservant beyond those who are enumerated in the canon as being persons free from suspicion, preserving himself hereby from being implicated in any blame. But if any anyone transgresses our degree, let him be deposed, and let eunuchs also observe the same rule, that by foresight they may be free of censure. But those who transgress, let them be deposed, if indeed they are clerics. But if laymen, let them be excommunicated." Unquote. The most interesting canon, though, is number 85, which does allow for the freeing or manumission of slaves by their owners, if the owner wants to free them, that is. But the freeing of the slave must be done in front of three witnesses, no less. And this, one must assume, is to ensure the freeing of slaves is not taken lightly and that there is proof that the due process was gone through. Quote, we have received from the scriptures that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Therefore, we decree that slaves who are manumitted by their masters in the presence of three witnesses shall enjoy that honour. For they being present at the time will add strength and stability to the liberty given. And they will bring it to pass that faith will be kept in those things which they now witness were done in their presence, unquote.
And this significantly is the first canon we find on freeing of slaves, although there is no compulsion on slave owners freeing slaves if they don't want them freed. It's a curious canon and one wonders why the church felt the need to comment on the issue. Perhaps with the advent of the Arab invasions and with the upheaval that caused, there were many slaves who had the opportunity to escape and gain freedom from their masters who were themselves fleeing to escape the Arab attacks. One can only speculate. Moving on to the last council I thought I'd bring up, which was the Second Council of Nicaea. Now, this was held in the year 787, and the main reason for arranging this council was the iconoclastic controversy that had been rumbling on in the Eastern and Western churches for quite some time. Anyway, over 300 bishops and other members of the clergy would attend this council, and the council would settle on a a return to the use of icons in the church. But the iconoclasm issue wasn't the only matter discussed at the meetings. There were two canons that also related to slavery as well. The more interesting one on the list was based on the suspicion that Jews were pretending to convert to Christianity, but secretly sticking to their own beliefs and culture in an effort to bypass the discrimination they experienced. Canon 8 warns that Jews must be seen to be sincere in their conversion and also warns that not only can they not bring their children to be baptised, but must not be allowed to keep slaves. And by that, it presumably means Christian slaves, as the rest of the population was. Quote, since certain erring in the superstition of the Hebrews have thought to mock at Christ our God and feigning to be converted to the religion of Christ do deny him and in private and secretly keep the Sabbath and observe other Jewish customs, we decree that such persons be not received to communion, nor to prayers, nor into the church, but let them be openly Hebrews according to their religion and let them not bring their children to baptism baptism, nor purchase or possess a slave. But if any of them out of a sincere heart and in faith is converted and makes profession with his whole heart, setting at naught their customs and observations, and so that others may be convinced and converted, such an one is to be received and baptised, and his children likewise. Unquote. Canon 18 also mentions slaves, but is directed at bishops commanding them not to have any women in their houses, and monks not to have women in their monasteries. And this included not just free women, but also slaves, so that there wouldn't be any hint of impropriety by the bishop. Quote, now for women to live in bishops' houses or in monasteries is ground for grave offence. Whoever therefore is known to have a, a female slave or free woman in the episcopal palace or in a monastery for the discharge of some service, let him be rebuked. And if you still continue to retain her, let him be deposed. Unquote. So as can be seen, a very rigid separation of the sexes being demanded to prevent any temptation occurring on the part of the Christian bishops and monks and with the clergy being refused female slaves. And finally, I just thought I'd add in some bonus canons and these are from a source called the Apostolic Canons or Canons of the Holy Apostles. These can be found in a 4th century Syrian Christian text and as the name suggests, are a collection of canons said to originate from the apostles themselves, although there is speculation as to how genuine the work may or may not be. Having said that, the council in Trullo in 692 CE, which we had a look at earlier, would ratify these entirely, although the Western Church only agreed to some of them. So there was controversy as to which ones were genuine or not. These canons, as with the ones from the synods we have mentioned earlier, essentially guide both Christian life and regulate the early church. There were 85 canons specified in the book, and these also include some interesting and quirky directives taking potshots at pagans and Jews, for instance. But we'll skip those in the interest of time and go straight to the directives relating to slavery.
Canon 18 is a, a ruling on marriage and bans men who have married a woman who has married before from becoming a bishop. Noticeably, men marrying servants and slaves are also excluded from joining the clergy. Quote, he who married a widow or a divorced woman or a harlot or a servant maid or an actress cannot be a bishop, presbyter or deacon or any of the sacerdotal list, unquote. So pretty strict stipulations on marriage. And as before, this presumably was due to the class system whereby a slave marrying a, a bishop would, by having a status higher than free men through marriage, prove socially awkward. Canon 82 bans slaves, meaning men, from becoming members of the clergy entirely. They must wait for their master to give the assent before the man can leave the household of his master and join the church. The canon mentions Paul, who in Philemon sends the slave Onesimus back to his owner as a hint that these were also the views and teachings of Paul. Paul did not encourage the slave Onesimus to flee or seek his freedom. Quote, we do not allow any servants to be promoted to the clergy without the consent of their masters. But if any servant should appear worthy of receiving an order, as our Onesimus appeared, and his masters agree and liberate him and send him out of their house, he may be ordained. Unquote. So there you have it. hope that was interesting. A very quick run through of the decisions relating to or mentioning slaves and slavery made by the bishops of the church from the 4th century through to the 8th century and essentially indicating an acceptance of the practice. Only two of the canons in the many councils address the issue of freeing slaves, and but that is only if the slave owner himself wishes to free a slave. A slave cannot take the initiative himself and seek freedom. And in fact, this sanctioned slavery would continue and become big business in Europe well into the 11th and 12th century as slaves were taken from the pagan communities around the Baltic Sea and traded in Christian Europe prior to and during what were called the Northern Crusades. Pagans being pagans were seen as fair game for enslavement. And if you are interested in that, I did produce an introduction video on the Northern Crusades recently, and which is now showing on the top right of this picture. So do check that out if you'd like to know more. Anyway, I will be returning with more in this series and discussing what other Christian personalities thought of slavery, and in particular the 5th century Saint Augustine, since he had such an influence on the direction of the church for the next thousand years and more. Anyway, a big thanks for watching and a reminder if you did find this video informative or entertaining, it really would help the channel if you could hit the like button for this video and subscribe to the channel as well. Appreciate you watching and hopefully see you in the next one.